0: If you are a guest with us this morning, I want to welcome you once again to Providence Row. My name is Blake Hilgenfeld, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are very grateful and thankful that you're here uh, on this Father's Day. And as Aaron said, uh, fathers, we celebrate you. We're grateful and thankful for, uh, for you and the way in which uh, you're calling to, to lead out in the family and to, uh, to point your kids to Jesus as we're going to kind of look at today more. We're going to flush that out as we get into the text this morning. Uh, but also knowing that uh, Father's Day can be uh, pretty challenging and pretty tough for some of us. This is my first uh, Father's Day without my grandfather, so I, I know kind of the pain of losing fathers and grandfathers. And so uh, we've been praying for you this week, and I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment. Uh, but uh, we, we want to just celebrate you guys as fathers, and um, so, yeah, thankful for you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10. If you're a guest, we have been going through the book of Romans Uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, We are now in chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 10, so we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 primarily this morning, kind of get into a little bit of 5, uh, but look at mainly verses 1 through 4. So uh, if you have a Bible, if you don't have one, there's one on on your seat that's next to you. verses will eventually be on the screen, Uh, but I do encourage you to open up to the book of Romans in chapter 10. So let's start reading in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, brothers, so he's speaking to to Christians uh, within the church of Rome. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, them being the people of Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Um, Father, we're grateful and thankful for this time that you have given us this morning to gather in this place. Uh, Father, first of all, we're thankful for uh, fathers. We're thankful for uh, the role and the responsibility and the privilege it is to to be a father. I know that, Father, as a a father myself... um, Father, I I know that as a result of having kids, I have a deeper understanding and appreciation of the love that you have for your kids. And so, Father, I just thank you uh, for that, and I thank you for uh, just the the privilege of being able to to raise kids and be able to to shepherd kids and be able to point my kids to to know how wonderful and great you are. But I also know, Father, uh, that during this this day it can be... uh, It would be tough for some of us knowing that we have lost fathers, we have lost grandfathers. And so, Father, we ask that you would comfort our hearts this morning like only you can. That your spirit would give us comfort in the time of grief and mourning. And that we would have great hope knowing that, Father, that you are um, our greatest father. And that you are the one that provides, you are the one that loves, you are the one that takes care of us like like no other. And so in this time of of, of missing uh, loved ones, Father, may... May you continue just to, 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 to comfort our hearts knowing that, Father, that you are the greatest father. And may we find rest in that. and Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that your spirit will lead us and guide us. For we're desperate for your spirit to lead us and guide us. We're desperate for your spirit to give us understanding. We're desperate for your spirit to, to give um, our dead hearts life. For you've given us life through your spirit so, continue to give us life as we look at your word this morning. That you would draw us to yourself, that we would see how great you are, that we would see how wonderful you are in and through your son, Jesus Christ, that we may be worshipers of you this morning. So, for your name's sake and for your glory, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, if you uh, are a guest with us this morning, or, or you know if you've just kind of jumped into the book of Romans, uh, maybe last week or the week before, Uh, There is this one primary theme that runs throughout all of the entire book of Romans. There is this this glorious truth that Paul continues to point us back to. He's like, he's relentless in, in, in never stopping pointing us to this one glorious truth. And this glorious truth is this that unrighteous and ungodly people like you and me can actually become right with a righteous God. So that is glorious in itself because God does not have to make a way for us to be made right with him. As we have been going through the book of Romans, we've seen very clearly that none of us are righteous. There's not one, which includes you and includes me, We all have gone our own way. We've essentially hijacked the story of God. The story of God is that he is the center of his story and he is to to have all the glory and the fame and the honor. But we've hijacked that story. We've placed ourselves in the center of the story to where we desire the fame and the glory and the recognition and the significance of those around us. And the due penalty for this, God has every right to actually separate us from himself, to cast us out of his presence. And we've seen that in the very beginning in the garden with Adam. We've seen his one act of disobedience. God rejects him and sends him out of his presence because there is no unrighteousness that can be in the presence of a righteous God. So the fact that God provides a way for us to be made right with him, we should actually be in awe of how great our God is for even providing this way back to him. So that's one glorious, stunning truth of this fact that that, that God provides this way. But but what's also stunning and what's also so kind of scandalous is the way in which God provides us to, to come back to him. So not only is it stunning that God provides a way, but it's stunning because of the way in which or the means in which he provides this path that he provides for us to come back to him. Because here's the reality. As we uh, look outside these walls, the world is full of, of ways in which we can actually, when I say actually, it's not really ways, but the world has ways in which we can become right with God. And the predominant way of the world, if a person is looking to be made right with God, that's a big if, right, that's a big assumption, that a person is actually looking to be reconciled with God. But if a person is looking to be made right with God, the world says the predominant way to do this, to restore your relationship with God, is to live good and right and moral lives before God so that he would accept you. So so this is the way of all major religions today. What all major religions today teach is, is that God is righteous and we are not. And the way in which we become right with God is trying our best to live up to God's righteous standards. So be good. Be kind. Be kind to Mother Earth. Be kind to your neighbor try your best, try as hard as you possibly can to live up to God's standards and definitely don't do the things that God is asking you not to do. So in other words, it's God's work plus your work, which equals justification or salvation. That is the predominant way of the world. Now the question is, is that the right way? Many people believe so, even within the church. I read this statistic this week that 80% of church members within the church in the United States believe that they actually can get to heaven by their good works. 80%. And this is what the people of Israel believe. This is what the people of Israel, this is the path that the people of Israel were going down, that they could actually earn their way to be made right with God through their righteous actions, through their righteous behavior, by trying to live up to God's standards. And this is the predominant way for the world today. We're going to look at verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge or not according to right knowledge. He goes on to say, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Paul is saying there is a way to be made right with God. There is a way. But the people of Israel, they missed it. They were ignorant of it and still are millions of people in the world today and maybe even some of us here this morning. Instead of going down God's way of being made right with him, what we have done is we go down this way of trying to do it on our own, to try to measure up to God's standards and trying really hard to check all the God boxes. And and they were passionate about it. So let's don't, you know, like... Let's see it for what it is. I mean, they, 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 they were zealous for trying to obey God. They were passionate for God. They, they, they were passionate and zealous to live a life of righteousness, to try to do the things that God wanted to do. So what's wrong with that? I mean, it sounds so good, doesn't it? It sounds so right, especially in Norman, Oklahoma, in our religious culture, in our religious environment. This sounds so good. So what is so wrong with a person passionately trying to live their life in such a way that that pleases God and it's this righteous living every single day of their lives? What is so wrong with that? A few weeks ago, my wife was at home and she gets this knock on the door. And she goes and she answers the door, and it's this young lady, and she's passing out some religious material. And so uh, she says, hey, uh, here I'm, I'm here to give you some, some hope, and this is a message of hope, and she handed my wife um, some, some uh, literature. And my wife said, well, thank you very much, uh, but can you tell me more about this message of hope? And this girl kind of stood there, and she kind of had this blank look on her face because I assume that she's not used to having people interact with her. She's not having, you know, used to people having conversations and trying to interact with her. And she said, well, you know, we just celebrated Easter, and we celebrated Jesus dying on the cross. And my wife said, well, how does Jesus dying on the cross actually give you hope? And the girl kind of had this look on her face of, um, like, I don't really understand that question, or I don't really know the answer. She said, well, you know, Jesus died as an example for us to follow. She said, you see, there are these standards in which God is set before us, and he requires us to live up to these righteous standards. And my wife said the most important question that she could ask this girl. She says, well, what hope do you have that you've actually measured up to God's standards? Like, like what hope do you have that you've actually measured up to this righteous requirement that God has set for you that you are to live? And the girl stood there, and she says, I don't. I don't know for sure, but I'm trying my best. So guys, what, like, how can we blame this this, this girl, right, Who who's trying her best to live up to God's standards? It's, I mean, it seems so good, doesn't it? It seems so right. But just like her, and just like the people of Israel, and just like so many people outside the church, and then even inside the church, we are trying our best to love God and obey Him in order to be right with Him. So the question is, what is so wrong with this? Here's the problem. If you or me, or the people of Israel, or this young girl... If we look to our own works of righteousness, if we look to our own behavior, if we look to how do we actually measure up to God's standard and try to live that out, we've got to do that perfectly. That's what Paul says in verse 5. Look at it. He says this. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. What Paul is saying is this. If you go down this path, all right, so if you go down this path of trying to, 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 to make yourself right with God by relying on your own works of the law, then the only way that this is going to work for you or anyone else that, uh, else out of this place, and including myself, is that we have to obey God perfectly in order to have life. So, so in other words, like if we're gonna look to our own report card of obedience, it has to have A pluses across the board. Like, there is no room for A's, unfortunately. I would kill to have an A in college and high school. A minus, there's no room for A minuses. It has to have A pluses because the reality is is there is no room for failure. Because one failure, one act of disobedience to the law requires God to lay out this plan of separation, of condemnation, of removing us from his presence. Because, as I mentioned earlier, there is no unrighteousness, there is no sin that can remain in his presence. Just one, guys. I mean, we see it in Adam. And there is nothing that Adam can do to reverse the curse, no matter how good he tries to be. And Paul says this in in the book of Galatians as well. He says this, let me read it to you, it's going to be on the screen. For all who rely on the works of law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So he goes on to say, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Listen very carefully. The reason why there is no hope for this young girl who is trying to do so right, the, the, the reason why there is that the people of Israel need to be saved even though they are living a, a life of obedience and, and trying to love God and trying to do his will. The reason why none of us who inside the church, outside the church, who are looking to our own righteousness will not be in the kingdom of God is because no one's good enough. No one's good enough. No one can live up to his standards. I mean, guys, listen, let's just look at the Ten Commandments for just a moment, right? Like if you, I assume most people in here have grown up in the church, you're Christians, uh, you know the Ten Commandments very well. And when you read the Ten Commandments, what they should do is they should cause us to tremble. But they shouldn't cause us to say, I got this. I can do it. I don't need any help. I'm pull up my bootstraps and I'm gonna work really hard because I feel like I can I can live up to these standards, they should cause us to say, woe is me. Woe is me. Because what happens when you lay your life down? What happens when you lay your own character side by side by God's commandments? I mean, what happens when you lay your life down by even one of his commandments, the most important commandment to love God above all things with your whole body, your soul, your mind, and your strength? What happens when you lay your life down in, in comparison to that commandment? You nailing it? Listen, as we do this, as we take our life, and as we take the commandments, they should serve as a mirror ...to show us who we really are. And as we do this, Charles Spurgeon says this is what should happen within our soul. He says, when the law comes home to our soul, it's like this light in a dark room... ...revealing the dust and the dirt which has been, been unperceived. It's the test which detects the poison of sin in the soul... So he says, gaze into their depths, into the depths of the law, and see how terrible the holiness in which they require. And as you understand what the law demands, you will perceive how far you are actually from from fulfilling it, and how sin abounds where you thought there was little or none of it. Listen, even now, if we think that we can actually live up to God's standards in, in order to be made right with him, we're actually breaking it. Because we're guilty of what we're called, what's called pride. I got this, I can do this, I don't need any help, I got this on my own. That's called pride. And pride, just like lust and just like adultery and just like murder, breaks God's commandments and law. And so that places us all in the same boat, doesn't it? It's not like we're the righteous ones and they are the you know, unrighteous ones. We're all in the same boat. Every single one of us. And this is tragic. And this, this path is, is deadly. So the question is, like, what path are you on? Are you on this performance treadmill path? Like believing that God's going to accept you if you just go the extra mile. Or are you, you know, believing? Is your pride telling me, telling you, you got this? You don't need any help. That you can make yourself right with God on your own. Listen, we need to we need to hear this warning loud and clear this morning. Loud and clear that if we go down this path of thinking that we can actually be made right with God on our own effort and works and righteousness, there's no hope for you, there's no hope for me, there's no hope for this young lady or the people of Israel because no one is good enough seeking to establish your own righteousness will actually lead you away from God and not to him. So we need another way. Is there another way? Yes, there's another way. And this way is glorious, and this way is awesome, and this way, this way is magnificent, and this, this way is beautiful because it's God's way. It's not our way. It's not the way of human religion. It's the way of God, and that way, and only one way is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 1. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. If I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Guys, I want to make this as simple as possible this morning because I know my heart needs simplicity. I know my seven-year-old son is in here. He needs this to be simple. Because what I'm about to say is the most important thing that you can hear, the most important thing I can hear, and definitely the most important thing my son here, and it's the one thing that I've been praying over him since the day that he was born because this is the only thing that can actually save his soul. And it's this. There's only one human being who's ever measured up to God's standards. There's only one human being that has ever obeyed God perfectly. There's only one human being who has a perfect report card. There's only one human being who was nailed, no pun intended, all of God's do's and don'ts. And this person is Jesus Christ. Now listen, my son who's seven knew I was going to say Jesus. He's been taught. Most of us in here, I didn't take us by surprise as well. But what you need to see and what I need to see and what my son Davis so desperately needs to see every moment of his his life is this truth. That when we stop looking to our own righteousness to be made right with God. When we we finally realize that we can never measure up to God's standards, when we finally realize, when we see the law and it reveals the darkness within our heart and it begins to expose our sin and it begins to expose who we really are apart from God, when we begin to see this and we look not to ourselves, but we look to Jesus Christ, this is what happens to you and me and the Son that I so desperately love. God credits Christ's righteousness to you. God credits Christ's perfect obedience as your obedience. God credits Christ's perfect law keeping as your law keeping and therefore by faith, not the law, but by faith we're actually made right with God through what? Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's outside of us, that doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Jesus. He takes that and he places it into your account when you put your faith and trust in Jesus and now you are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, therefore you're saved. That's the gospel. That's good news. But the people of Israel did not believe this. They did not believe that you simply believe in Christ and you know what? His work becomes your work. They they did not believe that simple childlike faith in Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, his obedience becomes your obedience, his law keeping becomes your law keeping. They did not see that. They were ignorant of it and they went down this path of relying on their own righteousness, which is bankrupt. The only thing that actually works is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's it. This is God's way. And this way, guys, who gets the glory in this way? Do we do? Absolutely not. God gets 100% the glory in this way of salvation. Why? Because he's done it for us. We've fallen short of the standards. He has the solution, and it's Jesus, and it's by faith. His work becomes your work, and now you're declared righteous, saved. That's the glory of the gospel. So if you are looking to Christ this morning, then rejoice because you have this costly robe of righteousness which covers you this morning. And your primary identity now is what? You are righteous. So I, didn't, I don't know if you came in here with other names, other shameful names that you've been carrying around because of what you have done in the past and what they define you now as or what you see them to define you as. I don't know what those are. I don't know if you're struggling with shame this morning. I don't know if you're struggling with guilt. But your primary identity now, because you're in Christ, is you are righteous because he is righteous for you. So whatever those names that you cling to, that define you, they no longer define you anymore. You don't have to carry them anymore. Because they have been taken care of at the cross of Christ and he comes in and he places his identity on you. And when the Father sees you, he sees you hid in Christ and he sees you covered by the righteousness of his son Jesus. That's who you are now. It's your primary identity. May this bring much comfort to our hearts knowing this morning that we need to be righteous in order to be saved. And the righteousness does not come from the law; it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are saved. This is His way. This is the way of God. Now, let's 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 get this a little practical. How does this change the way that we live? how how, How does this How does this change as as we leave here this morning? I want to give us three kind of implications of God's way of making us right with him, of how that actually changes the way that we live. The first is this. This being fathers, I want to speak to you fathers. It goes for you moms as well, all parents, but I want to speak to you fathers. Point your kids to Jesus. Because listen very carefully. There is a way. I mean, if we want to see one thing that we can learn from the people of Israel is that there is a way that we actually teach the Bible, that we can love the Bible, that we can even love God that actually points our kids away from God and not to him. This happened to me, and it may have happened to many of you. As a kid growing up in church, as a youth, this is what I was taught, that the Bible was there to to serve me in order to get my moral act together. All right? So I knew I was a sinner, I was told I was a sinner, I knew it very well, but I was taught that the Bible was there, that I could learn from it to do right things and not do wrong things in order to get accepted by God. And so the Bible and Christianity became a list of moral do's and don'ts for me. If I did did them, God would be, what, happy with me. And if I didn't do them, God was going to be angry with me or he wasn't going to be happy with me. And so the Bible or Christianity just became essentially a a self-help fix issue or, or, or a method to fix myself and become my own savior. Anyone there? Anyone grew up in that environment? So as I read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, which is what the people of Israel would have read, so, for example, when I read the story of David and Goliath, I was taught this be bold, be courageous, and be fearless. Zero Jesus. So, what did I do? I tried to really uh, hard to be good. I mean, to be bold and to be, uh, to be fearless and, and, and to, to, to attack things and be, you know, just, just be this, uh, this, uh, this bold and courageous young man. When I was taught the story of Jonah, I was taught I better obey God or I'm going to be punished by being swallowed by a big fish. Zero Jesus. So I had this knowledge of the Bible, and it's actually deadly knowledge, guys. Because why? Because it was absent of Jesus. Like I had this this knowledge, essentially, of the Bible to become what? My, My own Savior. And Jesus was not even present. So listen, fathers. If you love your kids... May we never stop teaching them and showing them that there is only one way to be made right with God, and it's not in themselves, it's through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Guys, we need to, to, to teach them not five steps to improve themselves. We need to show them how they are actually dead in sin, and they need a perfect Savior who can come and rescue them from that which they can never save themselves from. So, yes, let's teach him the story of David to be strong and courageous. I want my son to be strong and courageous and fearless. But, guys, let us not stop there. Please don't stop there. May we continue and tell him that there is a greater king than King David and that he came to fight fight our greatest enemies of Satan's sin and death. And the king of kings, Jesus Christ, came and he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And it looked like he was going to lose the battle, but he conquered the battle by being raised from the dead. And if my son or any of our kids in here look to Jesus, he will free them and save them from that which they can never save themselves from. And that is sin and death. That's what they need. That's what they need. Let's teach them the story of Jonah. Let's let's warn them that chaos and destruction comes into our lives when we don't obey God. That's true. That's true for all of us. We see that in our lives, guys, that sin begins to unravel everything in our lives. But let's don't stop there. Let's show them how they too have actually rebelled against God and they too deserve to be punished just like Jonah. But here's the good news. God still chases after us just like Jonah. And how he threw his perfect son into the sea of his wrath upon the cross that was reserved for them. And how he spent three days, not in the belly of a fish, but in the grave to pay the penalty for their sin. And he was spit out of the grave to conquer death once and for all. And if my son or any of the sons and daughters in here, when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what happens? They become righteous in Christ. Their sins are forgiven in Christ. And he or none of the other kids could do that for themselves. That's what our kids need, guys. So as fathers, let us lead the way. Let us fill our homes with the story of Jesus. The whole Bible whispers his name. Every story of the Old Testament, every page of the Bible shows us our need for Jesus. And shows us how great and glorious Jesus is. This is what our kids need. And when they see and they savor and they treasure Christ, when they see who they truly are and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, you know what happens? They give their lives and they'll follow him. They'll live their lives of devotion to him. This is what should break our hearts, guys. It should break our hearts that our kids would see that Jesus Christ is the way. God's way of righteousness back to him. And not only this should this break our hearts for our kids, but this should break our hearts for all peoples. Our hearts should break for those who are lost. Look at verse one. Paul says, "Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is very similar. Jeremy talked about it last week, to Romans chapter 9, uh, verse two, where Paul says that I have great sorrow, And unceasing anguish in my heart, for he says that I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. So when Paul woke up, essentially every morning, he knew very well the spiritual reality of his brothers, the Israelites, who did not know Christ and was going down this path of righteousness was actually lead them away from God and not to him. He knew the spiritual reality of his brothers and sisters that if they continued on this path, they were actually doomed. They were doomed for destruction. They were accursed. They were under condemnation. And as a result, in the end, if they did not come off that path and on the path to Christ, they would be be lost and they would not be saved. And this reality, this spiritual reality crushed Paul's heart. It caused deep sorrow and unceasing anguish in his his heart. So the question is, do we see this reality, the people of this city, too? I mean, as as we sit here this morning and when we see the faces of those in our lives that we love, our neighbors, our friends, our families, maybe our co-workers who do not know Christ, does this same reality cause our hearts to have unceasing anguish and deep sorrow? I was at this funeral a few months ago, and the guy giving this message, he says this. He says, if you only believe, there is a God. If you only believe in something, and whatever that something is, if it's true and it's right in your own heart, then after death, you're going to be in a better place. Listen, there is this belief in the world today. That salvation or justification comes to us simply by death. Not even really by works. It's simply by death. That if you die, everyone is going to go to a better place. Unless you've done some things that are really, really bad, then you don't get in there. Again, it's, it's like this justification. It's like this salvation comes to every single person simply by death. And listen, this isn't true. Otherwise, why would Paul be so broken for his brothers that are going down this way to make themselves right with God that is not of Christ? And I can't help but wonder, maybe, just maybe, guys, maybe this belief has kind of entered into the church just a little bit. Is there a part of us, if we're honest with ourselves, that salvation comes to all simply by death and not Christ alone? Listen, if we say no, then why are our hearts not deeply broken for those who do not know Christ? Is salvation through Christ alone? Is submitting to God's way of righteousness in Christ the only way of salvation? Then if this is true, then this is what it means. Listen very carefully. This is what it means. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people in this city who are doomed for destruction. They are still under condemnation. And I know this isn't politically correct. If you've seen the news this week, it's been all in the news. That who are we as Christians to say that those who are not in Christ, there's condemnation for them? Who are we to say that? I know the world hates this truth, but this is what the reality is, guys. And so if this is true, then our hearts should be breaking as well. It should be our heart's desire, the same as Paul, our heart's desire for the people of the city that they would be saved. And this reality, this truth should actually cause us to fall on our knees and beg God to bring his salvation to the people of the city. This is what Paul happened to Paul, right? What does he say? My heart's desire and what? And prayer to God that they may be saved. So there is this brokenness which leads to prayer. There is this connection with the breaking of our hearts and prayer. They go together. You cannot have one without the other. If there is a lack of brokenness in our hearts for the salvation of people, there's probably a lack of prayer on our behalf for the salvation of people. I mean, I know that in my life when there's a lack of brokenness for the salvation of the people of this city, there is a direct result of me not praying for the people of this city. But the opposite is true. The times I'm most broken is in times of intense prayer for the people of this city that they would come to know the only way of salvation in Christ alone. So listen very carefully. When was the last time you were broken for someone who does not know Christ? When was the last time we found ourselves crying out to God in prayer for their salvation? Listen, do we want the people of this city to come to know the only hope of salvation in Christ alone? Do we? Do we want the people of the city to be awakened to the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the only one who can save, and that is Jesus Christ? Do we want Jesus? To receive the glory and the honor and the fame that he rightly deserves in worship of the people of this city. Then it's a direct result of God He's calling us to be a people of prayer. And as we become a people of prayer, here's our hope, here's our confidence that God is mighty to save. We've seen that over the last couple chapters of the book of Romans. The salvation is of God. And so listen, even as we sit here this morning, our God is on mission to cover this city with the fame and the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what He's doing. And He's calling us as His people this morning and tomorrow morning and in our fight clubs and our missional communities to, to join Him to become a people who join Him in praying and calling upon His name to bring His salvation to the people of this city. He's calling us to be a people who see prayer as more important than Netflix. He's calling us to be a people who see prayer as more valuable than time spent on social media. Because if this is true, guys, if Christ alone is the only way, if Christ alone is the only path, if submitting to God's way of righteousness in Christ Jesus is the only way of salvation for our neighbors and our friends and our classmates and our coworkers and people all across the campus, if this is the only way, then what can be more important in our lives than prayer? Is Is it our heart's desire? Is it our heart's desire that the people of this city would be saved? Or do we find our hearts this morning being cold? Do we find our hearts being hardened? Either way, we must pray. So let's pray. Y'all want to pray? Let's pray. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to enter into a time of prayer, corporate prayer. We've done this uh, a few times in the past, and we're going to do it again this morning. This is what I want us to do. Right where you're at, if you feel led to pray, I want you to pray out loud, loudly, so that all can hear. Don't be afraid. Everyone's for each other in here. And listen, if you're in there here this morning and you don't consider yourselves a follower of Jesus, I hope this shows you that we humble ourselves, that the power does not lie within us. The power lies within our great and glorious God who is moving in this city to bring his salvation. And we've been praying for you this week as well. So as, as you hear the, the people pray, that you would consider and you think about the greatness of who God is and that you would consider the path that maybe you're on. Does it lead to Jesus or does it not? Does it lead to salvation or does it not? Christ alone is the only way to salvation. So if you're not a follower of Jesus in your eye, I encourage you to just listen and, and to reflect on the prayers uh, uh, of the church praying to God on behalf of the people of this city. So listen, pray. If you feel led to pray, pray. Be bold. Be loud. Then I'm going to close our time, and then we're going to continue to worship by taking the Lord's Supper. Y'all, y'all want to do this? Okay, let's pray. Every um, every time we gather together as His people, as you know, we take uh, the take the Lord's Supper. If you're a guest. Um, there's a reason why we do that every single time we gather together. It's a visual reminder of our need for Jesus. It's a visual reminder of the greatness of Jesus. It's also a visible reminder that we're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter your skin color, it doesn't matter anything. The offer goes to all. All who humble themselves and come to God's way of salvation and Jesus Christ will be saved. Because it's through the, the life, the perfect life and the death and the resurrection of the person named Jesus Christ, which brings salvation to all who humble themselves and come. And so as we gather together as the church, we look at the bread which reminds us of, of Jesus' body broken for us. It reminds us of his life, his perfect life lived on our behalf. We say this statement a lot, a lot but Jesus lived the life that we all have failed to live. We all have failed to measure up to God's standards. We all have rebelled against, against him, but Jesus Christ alone has not. And so as we see his perfect body and as we see him on the cross suffering on our behalf, it shows us the way. It shows us the path. And as we, as we take the cup, it's a visual reminder of his bloodshed to cover all of our shortcomings, all of our failures, all the times we have failed to measure up to God's standards, and it covers it. It washes away the blood of Christ is the only thing that can wash away, it's the only thing powerful enough to wash away all of our failures, all of our sin, all of our shortcomings, all of our transgressions. His blood is the only way. And so it's great news for us, amen? Because listen, if you are in Christ... His blood has washed away all of your shortcomings. His blood has washed away all of your sin. His blood has washed away all of your transgressions because it was taken upon him on the cross and he was found guilty for your transgressions. He took the punishment, was condemned on your behalf so you would never be condemned. Something to celebrate, amen? So this is what I want you to do as you reflect on that glorious truth this morning. If you are in Christ, then I want you to reflect on the all-sufficiency, the beauty of your Savior, Jesus. That he fulfilled all of the law's demands for you. He died as a penalty for, the, for your transgressions against the law, but his life, he is the law keeper for you. So when the Father sees you, he sees you in Christ as the one who has kept all of the law's demands. You don't have to add anything to it. Christ is sufficient. So remind yourself of who you are. Place that identity of you in Christ upon you. And let it kill any shameful names that you may have of yourself as a result of your past. Now listen, if you are not in Christ this morning, if you're not trusting Christ, you're you're on a different path. But let me just let me just say this. If you wait to clean yourself up, if you wait to become better, you'll never come at all. It's the reality. That's the truth. Because in the end, you see yourself as your own savior. And I hope that you've heard loud and clear this morning that it's not going to work. Because God does have a standard. Because he's holy and he's righteous and he's perfect. And no one who is unholy, no one who is unrighteous, no one who is ungodly can come into his presence. But Jesus is the answer. He is the solution. And all who humble themselves and believe, God credits Christ's righteousness and perfection to you. Therefore, you're saved. So come. He's your only hope. He is the only way. He's the only path. So come this morning. But if you choose not, I encourage you to stay where you're at and continue to reflect on this path that Jesus is the path to God. He's the right way. Stay where you're at and reflect. But if you are in Christ... When you're ready, I want you to come and I want you to partake of the Lord's Supper. There's two two stations here and there's one in the back. When you're ready, come and celebrate your Savior.